2: Well, here we are, back on the farm.
1: When were you
3: ever last on a farm, or ever on a farm?
2: Well, well, I was. I think we had a third-grade field trip to a farm.
3: (laughs) Okay, so you're happy to be back on a farm.
2: I am, I am, and we're here at Deer Hollow Farm in Mountain View, California. Deer Hollow, by the way, is a working farm. This This is not for show. This isn't a petting zoo. These animals are, you know, part of an actual farm operation. Look at those chickens there. They look like they're having pretty good time? Well, uh, I think so. It's hard to tell by just looking at their faces whether they're having a good time or just sort of a mediocre time.
3: You know, really, the only difference between these animals and us is that we live in cities, we wear suits, and we play sudoku.
2: Uh, Sudoku, I, I, I don't know. Well, maybe these cows secretly play Sudoku. But there are other differences between us and these farm animals.
3: No, well, what I'm trying to say is that humans are animals too. But we're primates, yes. There are no primates here on this farm. But we are animals all the same, even though we like to deny it.
2: You could add feathers all over me, but I don't think I'd look like that rooster. Okay, well look at the sheep over here. I think she looks frustrated. You're reading something into that sheep that I don't see. I think that sheep's pulling the wool over your eyes, actually. Okay, the
3: point is, if we connect with... With animals we might learn something.
2: Well what I want to learn is how can they wear that wool year-round and still feel comfortable. <laughs> I'm Seth Shostak by the way.
3: I'm Molly Bentley and this is Big Picture Science where we're tapping into our animal instinct. Let's walk over here towards the oh here's a cat.
2: Wow yeah but that's not a farm animal unless it's one of those shepherding cats. <laughs> that cat's responsible for the goats. Goats sound like sheep. Do they? Maybe they are sheep. Oops. You might be right, actually. Upon closer inspection. <laughs> okay.
3: I see you have spent a lot of time on a farm.
2: Well, I, you know, I've forgotten all the silhouette photos they gave <laughs> me to identify the animals.
3: Well, this is just the sort of place that Rafe Sagren would find inspirational. He is a marine ecologist. And yes... We're not at the sea, but he says that there's a lot we can learn from the natural world and from evolutionary systems, perhaps more than you think. Uh, Specifically, how evolutionary adaptations in animals can teach us something. Because you know, evolution rewards success, not failure.
2: Well, that's right, because failure means you're out of the gene pool. You're, You're no longer a contestant, and he's a contestant.
3: Well, Rafe Sagren had a collaborative group called Darwinian Security, where he asked the question, what can we learn from biology and evolution about how to keep ourselves secure in a dangerous and unpredictable world? That was the question they were asking. Rafe's idea came from combining his work as an ecologist and studying adaptive systems and working with security groups after 9-11, including the Department of Homeland Security, which is a pretty interesting mix. He's an ecologist, and he's working with the Department of Homeland Security. Now, his favorite example of an adaptive animal you probably won't find it on this farm, but you will in the ocean.
2: Let me see if I can think of which ocean that is.
3: Do you want to guess what animal it is?
2: An
4: abalone? I don't
3: no, know. It's not. It's in the title of his book, Learning from the Octopus.
4: The octopus is a great way of thinking about adaptability because it does so many different things to survive. It has a very good brain, a cognitive mind, but it also has a lot of almost instinctual kind of adaptations. The way it can camouflage itself is a great example of adaptability, but it also can use a jet of ink to hide itself. It can squeeze into tiny spaces. It can make things to armor itself out of discarded coconut husks. So the way the octopus is adaptable is that it uses a lot of different methods to defend itself.
3: How do discarded coconut Husks end up on the sea floor, and what does an octopus do with them?
4: Well, uh, this was found, uh, I think, in Southeast Asia where tourists were basically chucking coconuts off the shells of boats on boat tours. So, uh, this is something relatively recent, and octopuses were shown to look at these things, grab them, take them away towards their den, and recognize that later they could use them as sort of a rolling suit of armor, and they actually learn to walk with their legs sticking out between the two halves of the coconut shells. That gives you a sense of octopuses as not just something that's instinctually adapting, but also something that's quite thoughtful about how it adapts.
3: They can see an object that they'd never seen before and figure out how to use it.
4: Exactly, and that's one example among many that we're discovering now where Animals and humans and many of the divisions that we put between us and the rest of the living world are starting to fall away as we look more and more at the natural world.
3: Now, in your book, you talk about us learning from the octopus. And at first, that struck me as a metaphor. Do you mean that as, as a metaphor that we should learn from the octopus when we consider how to protect ourselves from various sorts of threats? Or do you mean literally we should mimic what the octopus does?
4: Yeah, everything in the book is a mix of uh, metaphor and sort of literal lessons about how to adopt lessons from nature. It's mostly metaphorical in the sense that there's a lot of translation you need to do when you're taking something directly from nature and trying to apply it to society because we have certain ethical norms and political norms and economic norms that affect the way we translate things that are done in nature. So we're not going to do things exactly like nature does it. But there's a lot we can learn from three and a half billion years of evolution, most of that evolution being species trying to figure out how to survive and thrive in a very risky and unpredictable world. And that's exactly the same problem we deal with, is that we live in a risk-filled and unpredictable world.
2: Well, that's true enough. I never would have predicted that this uh, sheep over here would be so well adapted for uh, turning into outerwear. But, okay, Rafe uses the example of the octopus, and that's an animal that's, of course, very, very intelligent. But humans evolved, just as well as other animals, to survive, to protect ourselves. So what do the octopus and the other animals have to teach us specifically?
4: Humans are an incredibly adaptable species, on the whole. We've covered the globe, we've done amazing things, and in a way we're victims of our own success in the sense that we've managed, most of us, to insulate ourselves from the sort of daily struggle for survival that pushes most species to become Adaptable, And this sort of allows us this buffer where we've set up systems and organizations that are not nearly as adaptable as they could be or as they would be if they were constantly forced uh, to adapt. You're
3: talking about specific situations in the book, not just the general ability of humans to adapt, but how we respond to threats, whether it may be security threats, biological threats, terrorists, and so forth, which is another form of security. Um, can you give me an example? of something that we just don't do well?
4: Well, one of the things we don't do well that we're a little bit afraid of is decentralizing our ability to see change or problems or threats in the world and respond to it. And this is sort of where we get at the octopus way of adapting. An octopus has a great central brain, but it doesn't have its brain telling each arm what color to turn. Rather, there are millions of skin cells spread out across its body that all respond individually to change in their environment and then as a whole give the octopus its camouflage. We tend to centralize everything. You know, we create a Department of Homeland Security because we're concerned we're not getting enough information. It's actually the opposite of what you want to do. What you really want to do is challenge a lot of observers out there to see what's going on, what's changing, what the challenge is, and respond to it. That way you get multiple ways of seeing a problem and multiple ways of responding to a problem. So you want to have that combination
3: And if we were to draw on lessons from the octopus, what would we do differently?
4: Well, what I say in the book is this is not about tearing down these structures, rebuilding every company to be adaptable like Google or something like that, but rather inculcating adoptability within any structure. And there's a very simple switch that you do to make that happen. And that's to switch from giving orders, which is when a small group of experts decides what's best for everyone, and everyone's expected to follow that, to issuing challenges. Challenge is when you say here's a problem we're all facing, who among you can best help us solve that? And that's what unleashes that power of multiple distal observers of a problem and allows you to uh, reap multiple different ways of solving a problem.
3: Your emphasis there is on the power of numbers, and one of the examples you give is that of cicadas, who also employ the power of numbers. And how do these insects do that?
4: Well... Cicadas emerge in mass in huge numbers after periods of dormancy underground, and those periods are seven or 13 years, depending on the species, which is interesting because those are prime numbers. And prime numbers make it very difficult for a predator that's going to have sort of regular population boom and bust cycles to match up those cycles with this mass emergence of the cicadas. And it's illustrative of a larger point. With natural systems is that most natural systems try to create uncertainty for their adversaries and reduce uncertainty for themselves. And that's just one way using prime numbers that creates an uncertainty for the adversaries of these cicadas.
3: Now, I know you said you cautioned us against taking these examples from nature and just lifting them and then implanting them on a social system, a human system. But is there a case where the use of numbers or the irregular number system that cicadas employ? Can you think of a specific example where we could use that?
4: Well, there's lots of examples where we could use better use of numbers of randomness or unpredictable cycles to do the kind of security screenings that we do. And what I'm interested in is how much uh, randomness would it take to actually deter an adversary. So rather than saying what we do now, which is say we screen 100% of the people in exactly the same way, how much would it actually take of randomized screening procedures? Let's say one day you're checking people's shoes, another day you're having them take their sweatshirts off, another day you're asking them odd questions so that there's no sense of regularity for someone trying to figure out how do I get around this security system? What we do now is essentially reduce the uncertainty for our adversaries by pointing out all the things that we're looking for and keeping that consistent through time.
3: Do other animals eye each other to assess behavioral intent as well?
4: Oh, absolutely. I mean, within species, you certainly see primates such as gorillas constantly eyeing each other, trying to figure that out. But even more interesting is the interspecies communication that goes on. So one of the common things you see is that prey species will signal to their predators. And They do that in part to tell the predator, you don't have the uncertainty advantage of anymore. You can't sneak up on me. I'm telling you, I know you're there. But the signaling can be very specific. So for example, ground squirrels will make a loud alarm call to a hawk or a coyote if they see it. And that says, I know you're there. But they don't make an alarm call to a snake because snakes don't hear. Rather, they puff up their tail and wave it around. And if, and only if, that snake is a rattlesnake, they will also heat up their tail because rattlesnakes see in infrared. So you're talking about predators and prey communicating, the prey communicating with the predator in the predator's own language.
3: Rafe, you're a marine ecologist, and you spend hours and hours staring into tide pools. You live in the desert. You study the animals of the desert. How did you get involved with issues of national security?
4: Well, I always say that adaptation is about leaving or being forced from your comfort zone. So you think about these earliest amphibians, the seas were full of predators, they were forced out, but they were also kind of drawn out because they had an opportunity on land. And it was the same thing with me. in 9-11, I was in my comfort zone, which is the tide pools of Monterey Bay, doing my research on how species respond to climate change. But I found myself less than a year later, way outside my comfort zone, working as a science advisor to Congresswoman Hilda Solis, who's now our labor secretary. And it turns out that I couldn't shake the sort of natural historian in myself. So even though I had no tide pools to study in Washington, DC, I was studying that new security architecture that was appearing everywhere as if I were a naturalist. And that's where the first spark of this idea came out, because all the new security systems I we seeing were nothing like the tide pools that I studied in that they didn't change. They appeared and then they just stayed static. And I thought, how long would it take for an adaptable enemy to figure out how to get around these security systems? And that kind of drew me down the rabbit hole of looking into all of nature and how it adapts and how it deals with threats and putting that into a context that we could use in in society.
3: I think of a tide pool as being a pretty serene place, though, unless you have an octopus. You're lucky enough to see an octopus in a tide pool if it's big enough. But otherwise, I think of it as a very quiet, serene place, not an area that is changing and uh, adapting continually.
4: Oh, no. It's constantly changing. One thing I always tell students when they come to a tide pool is sit by it for a while and see how long it takes before you see things you never saw before. And it's only a few minutes of sitting quietly, and you see it all come to life. And you see things that look like a rock become a tide pool, sculpin, jumping and grabbing something. You see things that are almost invisible that turn out to be shrimp with transparent bodies. All kinds of things appear, not to mention that most tide pools are inundated by changing water, constantly changing chemical conditions as the tide changes, huge waves come crashing down with some of the harshest natural forces on Earth. You get some of the hottest temperatures, then some of the coldest temperatures. So uh, they are absolutely sources of continual change. And then day to day, night to day, I go out to these tide pools in Monterey thousands of times, and I always see a different landscape.
3: Rafe Sagerman, thank you so much for speaking with us.
4: Yeah, I really appreciate it. Rafe Sagarin is a marine
2: ecologist at the Institute for the Environment, University of Arizona, and author of Learning from the Octopus How Secrets from Nature Can Help Us Fight Terrorist Attacks, Natural Disasters, and Disease.
3: What you hear in the background are not octopus bars.
2: Octo- octopus bars? Is, is that where they go on Saturday night?
3: I just mean, I don't think that these are the sounds that an octopus make, but they're certainly the sounds of very noisy sheep and goats. (laughs) I thought the stories of the octopus were really pretty amazing. The idea that the octopus would find this... uh these coconut shells on the bottom of the sea and and put them on and walk around with them as though it was defensive armor.
2: Yes, yes. Well, they're very clever at, for example, figuring out how to unscrew jars and things like that to get at food or whatever. Very inventive behavior, the kind of behavior you don't see in, for example, cows. I mean, the cows are a lot bigger, but they're not as clever.
3: If you came across uh, two halves of coconut shells, would you put them on your legs and walk around? That's a big question.
2: (laughs) I don't think I would do that, but uh, I think not doing it is a sign of intelligence. Coming up, why this pig over here and I, it sounds like a play, the pig and I, might one day go to the same doctor to treat whatever it is that ails us. That is one big pig. Yeah, it's actually a sow, in fact.
3: We'll discover how animals' patterns of illness mirror our own, and also how monkey business may have led to human speech. Tap into your animal instinct.
2: On Big Picture Science
3: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com
4: slash talk to us.
3: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
2: We're tuning into our inner animal here on Big Picture Science. And if I had to be any animal here on Deer Hollow Farm in Mountain View, I think I'd be, I think I'd be that cow. It seemed to have the best lifestyle and the best future prospects.
3: I might be that cat. She had a lot of freedom.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that that, that cat was a pet. That wasn't part of the livestock.
3: Well, they look like they have it easy. But this is actually a 150-year-old working farm, and it's a beautiful day to stroll around, get to know your local pig
2: and other livestock. We've been hearing how much we have in common with other animals, Because, of course, we are animals. Humans are animals. We've met the animals, and they are us.
3: That's right. Now, if one of these animals here got sick, the owners of the farm would call a veterinarian.
2: But 100 years ago, you know, whether it was the pig or the farmer that got sick, well, one doctor, the one and the same doctor, would treat them both.
3: Right. And while Barbara Natterson Horowitz isn't calling for a return to those times exactly, as a cardiologist, she thinks that veterinarians and medical doctors could benefit by exchanging patient files.
2: Yeah, with their permission, of course. She occasionally travels to zoos around the country as a member of a medical advisory board that consults with veterinarians in certain specialized cases.
3: It was on one of those visits that she had a flash of insight about human and animal diseases and met a tamarind monkey. I was called to the zoo to uh, do an echocardiogram,
0: a cardiac ultrasound, on a tamarin. And tamarind are these little South and Central American monkeys. They live, they're live; they adorable. They live at the top of the canopy of the rainforest. They have these big eyes and Fu Manchu mustaches. And um, the veterinarians were sedating the animal. Her name was Spitzbubin, And uh, she was so cute that I looked into her eyes really deeply. And uh, that's what I would do with a human patient to connect. And the vet put his hand on my shoulders and said, stop doing that you are going to give her capture myopathy.
2: Well, maybe you can tell us what that condition is. It sounds like a lot of Latin.
0: Capture myopathy? Yes. Well, capture myopathy is a syndrome veterinarians have known about for many decades. Animals, when they're chased or when they're being restrained, when they're really terrified, they spew adrenaline, and the adrenaline poisons the muscles of their body, including their heart muscle, and sometimes those patients can die. But the reason it was so interesting to me as a human cardiologist is that about 4 or 5 years before I had this experience I had seen in the human medical literature a new diagnosis called was it was a fear-induced form of heart failure. It had a fancy Japanese name takatsubo cardiomyopathy, but in essence it was a stress or fear, high anxiety induced form of heart failure in humans.
2: So so what you're saying is that you were confronted with the fact that this monkey could get the same sort of condition that that you saw in humans.
0: What surprised me was the fact that it was a new diagnosis in human beings. But veterinarians, veterinary academics and practitioners had been writing about it, had knowledge of it, had ways to treat it and prevent it for many decades. And that moment made me think, if that exists for me as a cardiologist, what other knowledges lying in the veterinary world that physicians have no clue about.
3: And that insight led her to collaborate with writer Catherine Bowers on the book, Zubiquity, what animals can teach us about health and the science of healing.
2: Zubiquity discusses the idea that humans and animals share the same diseases, and not just close cousin animals, such as monkeys and humans, but all sorts of animals. And, says writer Katherine Bowers, all sorts of diseases
1: we've seen breast cancer in cocker spaniels, kangaroos, llamas. Essentially, any animal that has breasts can get breast cancer, and that describes all mammals. There are behavioral conditions from erectile dysfunction to substance use and abuse to self-harm and eating disorders that we've seen that have correlates in animals that we sometimes think of as being uniquely human. So this was really a chance for us to look at human diseases and compare them across species and see what we can learn from veterinary knowledge.
2: Let, let, let's take a specific case, and that's cancer. Uh, it shouldn't be surprising, of course, that cancer afflicts many species mm-hmm. because it's a disease of, of cells, after all. And wherever cells will divide, wherever you have DNA replicating, there's likely to be the chance for cancer. So that would suggest that, you know, I don't know, well, maybe maybe dolphins, maybe bears get cancer. Do they?
0: Of course, absolutely. Cancer is neither unique to our species nor is it unique to our contemporary times. So yes, cancer's been identified in animals from bears and wolves to reptiles to fish. Cancer is species-spanning. We also learned, and it surprised us, that the fossil record shows evidence of cancer in not only early man but also as old as dinosaur. So we're talking about millions of years of, of cancer.
2: Since all these creatures do get cancer, and and we attribute a lot of cancers now to environmental or behavioral. Causes, Right? Lung cancer, you, know, you smoked or whatever. There are toxins in your environment or whatever. People try quite hard to avoid uh, the latest behavior that is seen to increase cancer rates and so on. But does that t- obtain for the animals? Is that true? I mean, I don't see too many animals smoking and so forth, and yet they still get cancer. So is this kind of uh, questioning our assumption that so much cancer is due to environment and behavior?
1: Well, there's certainly things that humans can do that amp up our chances of getting cancer Barbara has treated patients who've smoked and drunk and tanned their way into bypass surgeries and other human afflictions. And it's true that a chimpanzee is not going to get lung cancer from smoking. But the point is that if you strip away our human culture and the things that we do that amplify the risk, cancer and other diseases are a fact of life and they're part of our being human animals on this planet
0: to go on with what Catherine mentioned, there are wild animals that have environmental exposures that do cause them to get cancers. And one compelling reason for physicians and veterinarians to have a lot of contact is that animals in the wild can be sentinels of risk. They can they sometimes get sick before we do, and they can signal that there's toxins. There were a group of beluga whales in the early 80s up in northeastern Canada, and a group of them started dying and you know washing on shore. They did beach necropsies, autopsies essentially, and they found that these animals had the whales had breast cancer, colon cancers, a whole bunch of of cancers. And interestingly, the females, some patients, humans who were living in that same area, had a similar bump in their um, breast cancer rates. And ultimately, it was identified that there was an aluminum smelting facility that was contaminating the area that was leading to cancer.
1: There are also veterinarians and physicians who have collaborated to look at effects of secondhand smoke in households, and sometimes those affect cats and dogs also.
2: Really? So, in fact, they might be good, well, this is maybe the wrong metaphor, but they're kind of like canaries in the coal mine, right? That They may signal an environmental condition.
0: Yeah, well, absolutely. In a world where we're all interconnected, we are all canaries in the coal mine for each other. I mean, we humans may get sick in advance of animals. I mean, this is this can go in both directions, but yes. Okay.
2: But, but it seems to me that the, the more interesting case, at least for me, is not so much the environmental cancer concerns, mm-hmm. because once we've identified those, we can at least, in principle, do something about it. You know, don't smoke or whatever, or at least that's my impression. But, you know, most people get cancer because of reasons we don't understand, that mm-hmm. something goes wrong with the cell machinery. Mm-hmm. Can we learn anything from the fact that animals get cancer about this? I mean, is it merely an interesting fact, or does is it going to make a difference down the line? So one of the
0: um, very interesting uh, people that we encountered in, in researching this book uh, was the work of Sir Richard Pito. And um, this was a, a work that he did, uh, and he asked a question. He said, well, if cancer happens with cell divisions, then shouldn't animals who are very, very big – have a lot of cancer. Shouldn't every whale be riddled with cancer? Because and,
2: they do more cell division. Because
0: there's more cell division, and of course, it turns out they they are not, uh, at, to, at least to the extent that we we know. Because of course, there are a lot of challenges in knowing exactly how much a disease and cancer you know whales have. We
2: they don't report it. They
0: don't. They don't have colonoscopies and mammograms, <laughs> but several groups are looking at it. Do larger animals have some special feature to their DNA which protects them from cancer because they need to grow? So, I mean, it's it's interesting to even ask that question. That kind of question, you can only ask if you're thinking across species lines comparatively.
2: Is somebody trying to answer that question? Is anybody doing research? I mean, you know. <laughs> Uh, th- that's one of the things here. It's nice to say that animals get the same disease as we do, and so that might eventually benefit the animals because we've got the NIH looking at human diseases, but I don't know, is there a, an AIH or something? <laughs> I mean, is there some organization that's researching in a heavy-duty way animal diseases that might pay us back from that direction?
0: Yes, there are several groups that are doing this. There's an evolutionary medicine group, actually, at UCSF uh, that's looking at questions like that. And the National Cancer Institutes have a comparative oncology program that are looking at the shared diseases of humans and animals. And the idea is that the results from that research will come back to benefit humans and animals. They're looking at melanoma, osteosarcoma, lots of big killers.
2: Did you discover any disorders, diseases in animals that kind of surprised you?
1: One thing that surprised me was the idea of eating disorders. Eating disorders seem so very, very human. They seem to be connected to body image and like a sense of self, how you might look in the mirror and think you look fat. But, uh, of course, an animal isn't going to do that. And what we discovered is that there's a self-starving syndrome in pigs that looks a lot like human anorexia nervosa. And it afflicts pigs when they're young and just about to move from their mother's side into the herd. And pig social hierarchy is really intense. They have to get out there and prove themselves. And it's important that they have a certain amount of social confidence as they go out. And some pigs are a little bit more anxious. And they can respond to this stress by reducing their eating and getting thinner and thinner, and some go on to starve themselves to death. There's also a self-vomiting syndrome that can be seen in gorillas, beluga whales, dolphins, that again is not exactly like human bulimia, but is something that veterinarians call defensive regurgitation and is just an interesting way to think about eating disorders and applying these animal behaviors to human conditions.
0: It's thinking out of the box, sort of having an expanded perspective on what's unique and what's shared. It's got to lead to at least new questions.
2: Barbara Nadison Horowitz, thank you so much for talking with me.
0: I'm happy to be here. Thank
3: you for having
2: us. And Catherine Bowers, thank you for being with us as well.
3: It's a pleasure. Thank you. Barbara Natterson Horowitz is a cardiology professor at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Catherine Bowers is a writer. They are co-authors of Zubiquity, What Animals Can Teach Us About Health and the Science of Healing. And certainly there are many animals on this farm, including human animals walking around.
2: Yeah, well, as I walk around this farm, Molly, I don't see too many animals that I'd say behaved like me.
3: Can I weigh in at this point?
2: You know, that's, that's a cheap shot. Now, for that, we'd, I mean, for that, we'd have to go to a zoo and to the primate house, in fact, specifically. well that would be interesting, not just because monkeys are fun, they have a lot of fun, but they and the apes are our closest cousins. And from studying them, we can understand more about our own evolutionary origins, of course.
3: What do you think is louder, a monkey house or a sheep pen?
2: Yeah, well, I don't know.
3: Okay. Well, one of the questions we can get at is the evolution of behavior. Now, some behavior we take for granted, such as speaking. And it would be hard to do this radio show if we couldn't speak.
2: Well, I don't know that it'd be harder, but it'd be perhaps less interesting. So there are a number of ways that monkeys communicate that lay the foundations of speech. I mean, they, they make gestures, they vocalize, they make grunts, whatever. But neuroscientist and psychologist Asif Gossenfar at Princeton and his team have identified another behavior that's been overlooked. Uh, and that may be responsible for our ability to talk. And you do this behavior every time you eat a peanut butter sandwich. But I wondered, outside of when I'm eating, is lip-smacking something we humans have occasion
5: to do anymore? And My students often do that towards monkeys in order to get them to reply with a lip-smack. And it'll sound something like this... Can you hear that at all? I can, yes. Yes. I don't know what it means, but I can hear it. And the monkeys are
2: doing this, uh, you know, frequently? Do they do it once a day, once a week, or are they doing it all the time?
5: Monkeys give lip smacks in very friendly situation, and what they do is they exchange lip smacks with each other in order to kind of signify friendly intentions. So one monkey will go towards another monkey, produce a lip smack, and that other monkey, if it makes eye contact, will produce a lip smack back in reply.
2: Okay. So it sounds like a sort of an acknowledgement. I, I know you're there. I'm paying attention to you. It doesn't sound aggressive in any sense. They don't lip smack if they're ticked off.
5: No, not at all. In fact, some of the most frequent lip smack exchanges are between mothers and infants.
2: So this lip smacking was just a communication mode, and maybe in the same way that, I don't know, touching uh, an infant might be some sort of communication mode. But how did this evolve into speech?
5: So that's what we're uh, getting at here. So the first thing about speech is speech has a a universal rhythm. When we're speaking right now to each other, our mouths are moving. They're opening and closing at a stereotypical frequency that's between 3 and 8 hertz. So our mouths are opening and closing 3 to 8 times per second. doesn't matter what language you look at. It'll always be within that frequency range.
2: This is kind of a typical frequency at which we operate the mechanism that makes noises with our mouths.
5: Exactly. Okay. Exactly, okay? And that's unique to speech. So if you look at other rhythmic mouth movements like the ones that we produce when we chew things, they're much slower, okay? So it's not the case that every kind of mouth movement that we make is going to have this frequency. So it seems to be specific. So that's one thing that we need to know about speech that's universal. The other thing that we need to know about speech is that when we produce speech, it's actually, there's two main components of it. Typically when we think about speech, we think about Oh, it's our larynx or our vocal folds that are making these sounds that make it, you know, different vowel sounds like, ah, ee, But in fact, that's only half the story. The other half of what allows us to produce speech is the way that we move our mouths to change the shape of our oral cavity. So, for example, if you were to say those vowel sounds again and just pay attention to the shape of your mouth, you'll see that you can have the same output from the vocal folds, but if you change the shape of your mouth, you'll get different sounds like ah, ee, All that is being shaped by what's called the vocal tract. The vocal tract is basically the oral and nasal cavities that are just above your vocal folds.
2: Well, if I'm understanding you correctly, what you're saying is that, all right... Uh, the lip smacking was some way of producing sound, but you're describing the anatomy that allows you to modify those sounds into the, I don't know, phonemes, whatever,
5: the things that constitute our speech. That's close. So what I'm saying is there's, there's two parts to speech, one that produces a sound and one that shapes the sound. And lip smacks, because they don't really produce any sound that comes from the vocal folds, the only thing that you hear in a lip smack is that the lip smack actually represents the shaping part of producing a speech sound. That is, it's part of the vocal tract, not part of the sounds that are produced by the larynx. So there's two parts of that speech. There's a universal rhythm, and then there's this vocal tract mechanism that shapes sounds. And the argument is that those components evolved from lip smack.
2: When did this occur? When did lip smacking sort of become speech? How how long ago are
5: we talking? The only thing we can say at this point is that a common ancestor to, to macaques and humans very likely exhibited this same kind of rhythmic mouth movement. Now, where lip smacking got linked up to modifying vocalizations, thereby changing the filter so the vocalizations sound differently, that's that's unknown, and that's a very, very difficult question to ask. But what we do know is that chimpanzees also have lip-smack gestures that are roughly in the same frequency range.
2: The, the question that strikes me is that, look, these, uh, these monkeys that you've studied have the mechanism of lip-smacking, but they don't have speech. <laughs> and, and they've been sitting
5: around for a long time now, and they haven't done this. Why did we succeed and they didn't? Well, monkeys don't seem to have, even though they seem to be able to produce lip smacks in one instance when they're exchanging facial expressions, and they're certainly able to produce vocalizations in other instances, like the grunts and things that you described before, they don't seem to have the neural circuit to put those two together and produce the facial expression and the vocal expression at the same time, which is in essence what we do when we produce speech. Clearly,
2: speech has a a considerable advantage over lip-smacking as a communication mode. Uh, Sounds like it could do many more subtle things with it. I think this radio show would be somewhat less interesting if it depended entirely (laughs) on lip-smacking sounds. So, so. uh, in general, you know, what is the advantage of speech? I mean, if you have to explain that to somebody inside of 20
5: seconds, what do you tell them? There's several big advantages. The one big advantage is that you can communicate very complex thoughts and ideas in a very, very short amount of time. And the other advantage is, is that we can do this without seeing each other.
2: In other words, uh, you, you, you can talk to people that aren't looking at you or, or behind a tree or something like that. It's a That's right. Yeah. Com- That's okay. Right. And finally, Asif, lip smacking led to uh, gum beating, if you will. In our species, do humans still do anything like lip-smacking? I mean, it almost sounds romantic.
5: I'm not sure I'm the right person to ask. I have a four-month-old daughter, and since I've seen so many mothers and infant monkeys lip-smack to each other, I find myself lip-smacking to her, but I'm not sure every parent does this. Um, Whether or not we can link lip-smacking to things like kissing, I'm not sure. That's a... It's the domain of another study. <laughs>
2: okay. Well, thank you so very much for talking with us
5: today. Thank you so much, Seth.
3: Azif Gazanfar is a neuroscientist and psychologist at Princeton University, and I wonder what he'd have to say about what this pig here is thinking.
2: Yeah, well, I, I don't know. We have to ask the pig. Oh, well, it, uh, mm, it,
3: <laughs> it seems to have responded.
2: Yes, yes. I thought that was oh an incisive oink. Well, we could certainly walk with these animals here on the farm, but I'm not sure we could talk with them. And and after all, there are other differences, too. I want to point out the obvious. We have moral codes of behavior, and animals do not. They're kind of amoral. They don't think about that. We'll
3: find out more about how moral codes did evolve in humans coming up.
2: We're running on animal instinct here on Big Picture Science.
6: Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Well, as we walk around Deer Hollow Farm here in Mountain View, we're getting in touch with our animal natures.
3: Well, we've heard how the connections that we share with the rest of the animal world could change our approach to national security and even how we treat disease. And those are guides to our future. And by studying our ancestral animal past, we catch a glimpse of how behaviors such as speech have evolved. Now, this leads us to understand what behaviors separate humans from the rest of the animal pack or herd or drove or clutch or litter or swarm or... Can you think of any other way that animals get together?
2: Yeah, mobs, clubs, armies.
3: Okay, those are all things you definitely want to stay away from.
2: Yeah, it's funny how humans get into groups that you really do want to stay away from. Animals, generally speaking, don't. In terms of behavior, look, I just don't think that this sheep over here really is going to yield its patch of green grass to that other sheep over there just to help them out. Or, I don't know, maybe it would under some circumstances, but humans do that all the time. Extraordinary acts of kindness, uh, frequently altruistic behavior. In fact, we display a whole range of behaviors that the animals never do, even other primates.
3: Christopher Boehm argues that humans have a unique and complex moral code that is part of what makes us human. Dr. Boehm is a biological and cultural anthropologist at the University of Southern California. He's the director of the Jane Goodall Research Center, and he has studied more than 150 hunter-gatherer societies. He uses his experience to inform his book, Moral Origins, the Evolution of Virtue, Altruism and Shame. Let's start with altruism.
2: Chris, okay, I risk my life to pull someone from a burning building.
7: Is is that altruism? It is altruism uh, at the level of evolution and empathetic feelings that drive altruistic acts. Uh, however, if there's a huge reward for pulling the person from the building, then it might not be altruistic. It might be mercenary. So it really depends on the motive. But it, basically, if you help somebody and they're in trouble, it's usually altruism.
2: Okay. It sounds to me like altruism is kind of a fuzzy concept. Is is that so? Is there a rigorous definition of what you mean by altruism?
7: Well, we have a couple of definitions to work with. Uh, One of them is purely biological. I give away my resources to someone else who doesn't reciprocate, and they are a non-relative. If I help a relative, then I'm helping my own genes. If I help a totally unrelated person, that is altruism, technically, from a biological standpoint. The second definition is more cultural, and it has to do with uh, people being altruistic in the sense that they're empathetic, they feel for others, they're willing to sacrifice for others. And this may or may not involve any costs, but biological altruism is costly.
2: Lead me down that road. How how could this have arisen?
7: Well, uh, here's here's my theory. Group selection usually is not powerful enough to support altruistic acts by individuals, But totally overlooked is the fact that altruists do get some indirect paybacks for being altruists. And one of them is what I call social selection, which means that if you have a good reputation as an altruist, you'll be chosen as a marriage partner. Uh, You'll be chosen uh, also as a subsistence partner. We're talking about hunter-gatherers who evolved our genes for us here. And as long as you're getting a big payback in the form of uh, better partnerships, then the fact that it costs you a little bit to be an altruist is more than repaid. And in that case, altruists can beat out non-altruists. And the other side of the story is the what I call the notorious free rider. The,
2: the notorious free rider. This uh, I, They have that on the San Francisco public transit system. What, <laughs> what, what do you mean by that?
7: Uh, a free rider is basically, that is, someone who is designed, as it were, to take advantage of an altruist. So the altruist we can see is the gullible, naive, giveaway artist. The free rider is the selfish exploiter who will take advantage of an altruist in 17 different ways. And free riders also in hunting bands are controlled. In fact, some of them may lose more than they gain through their free riding antics. Uh, Let me give you an example of that. You have a bully, uh, alpha male type. And he goes around grabbing off the best of food, the best of mating opportunities, and so forth. And he would totally outclass the altruists, except for one thing. And that is that the rest of the group is going to get together. It's a moral group now, hunter-gatherers. They're going to get together, and they're going to take this guy out. Uh, They may just make him stop uh, what he's doing, but they may actually kill him. Uh, Capital punishment is quite frequent in hunter-gatherer bands, And the primary culprit in a case where the group kills a deviant is going to be always a big shot, a free-riding bully.
2: So so what you're saying is that there was this kind of social control mechanism, I don't know, 100,000 years ago when we were all on the Savannas looking for dinner, that seems to have shaped our behavior in the sense that it corrected for these sort of outlanders, these free-riders, these people who are not at all altruistic.
7: That's absolutely right, and the, the benefactor uh, is the group as a whole, and the beneficiary is especially the altruist, because the altruist is the perfect target for a bully, for a cheater, for a thief, because the altruist is going to be sort of a naive good guy who is easy to take advantage of. And when you have both the altruists gaining reputational advantages from being altruistic, and you have the groups cracking down on these free riders, it gives altruistic genes a, a much greater purchase on uh, expanding their their frequencies and becoming fixed in gene pools.
2: So, Chris, to, to what degree is this sort of mechanism that encourages altruism limited to humans? I mean, it sounds like it might also work in species that, like humans, are social. Wolves hunt in groups, they hunt in packs. Are they moral? Do they have altruism in the same sense that we do?
7: Well, in the book, I actually look into this in some detail, and my favorite two examples are dogs and chimpanzees, but wolves are also a great example, but also uh, dolphins and elephants. So, uh, if we look at dogs, uh, we fantasize that dogs feel guilt and shame and so forth and so on. But the evidence is extremely slim, and uh, our love of dogs, of course, accounts for this anthropomorphism. And the fact is that a dog will not even understand why it's being punished unless you punish it in the act. I believe dog trainers have told me that within 0.6 of a second after the act is finished, they can understand why they're being punished. A full second later, they have no idea. It's just my... My big guardian who I love dearly has just been mean to me. So we have uh, really a uh, a lack of anything like morals in dogs. There's There aren't shame feelings. Now, chimps, we'd expect the precursors or even moral feelings to be present because we share 98.6 of our DNA with these guys. And uh, I spent six years at Gombe National Park, and I never saw an example of a chimp who was doing something that would offend somebody else, namely the alpha male, and seemed to feel badly about doing it if they didn't get caught and if there were no chance of getting caught.
2: Now, wait a minute. Are you saying that in the chimp world, uh, they don't worry about what we would call immoral behavior as long as they don't feel they'll ever be caught?
7: That's right. Uh, There are are home-raised chimps who have been raised as humans, which would be our best shot at whether chimps are capable of morality because they're raised by moralistic humans and they're toilet trained and so forth and so on. And these home-raised chimps simply don't seem to understand rules in the sense that we do, because we understand a rule as something that is part of us. For the chimp, it's an exterior thing. I could get punished. I could get a privilege taken away. But as long as I don't get caught, I feel perfectly fine. Boy, it's more than
2: just a dog eat dog world. It's a a chimp eat chimp. Although I suppose they don't eat one another, but chimp eat chimp world. So really, uh, we're well. We're...
7: Let me let me let me interrupt you to say that chimps are perfectly capable of cannibalism. Oh, I was once uh, part of a film called Animal Cannibals, and we talked about chimps and why they eat, eat one another sometimes. But please go ahead.
2: Uh, well, okay, that's even worse. So so really, are we the only species that has moral behavior? Not by definition really well i guess it is always by definition but you know what i mean that 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 we actually will treat one another fairly gently simply because we feel it's the right thing to do
7: yes a human being is capable of shame which i consider to be be the primary mark of morality because it's widespread every culture has a word for shame and so i think shame is the basic moral emotion And in the book, I talk about the fact that shame is linked to blushing. You can blush with shame, and that's clearly an evolved evolutionary trait that we have.
2: Well, how did we get that?
7: Well, that is one of the big mysteries of evolutionary biology. Nobody has the slightest idea as to how we came to blush with shame, but it is clearly linked. It's also linked to embarrassment, which is not necessarily moral but it's very closely linked to shame. And if you go around the world, you'll see that every culture has a name for shame, and very often it's a metaphor that has to do with the darkening of the face, the reddening of the face, and so on.
2: Finally, Chris, if we were to discover another planet with intelligent life, another species, sentient beings on another, uh, another planet, would we expect similar traits to have appeared there? I mean, virtue, altruism, and so forth? in any species of intelligent beings?
7: I certainly think intelligent beings is the key word because you can create a highly cooperative society in which everybody's a very good conformist, or almost everybody, uh, simply by hardwiring ants to behave as they do. Ants, bees, certain kind of social wasps and so forth. When it comes to intelligent beings then their behavior is much more flexible. And morality does fit with a more flexible type of behavior. Uh, And that's why self-control becomes a big item, because you have uh, human beings who have all these desires, many of which are going to be antisocial, and they've got to keep themselves uh, within bounds so that they can be successful. Now, whether it would be inevitable that morality would arise somewhere else if you had guys as smart as we are, Darwin said that a conscience can be explained by the fact that humans have become as sympathetic and intelligent as we have, that it's an an inevitable side effect. And the actual evolution of a conscience uh, maybe is going to happen only this once. But what we do know is that we have an ancestor we share with chimps and bonobos, and that ancestor in one of its lineages, developed a conscience and morality. And in the other two, we still have chimps and bonobos who will get away with anything they can and have no moral compunctions whatsoever.
2: Christopher Boehm, thanks so much for talking with me.
7: Uh, thank you. It was very enjoyable.
3: Christopher Boehm is a biological and cultural anthropologist at the University of Southern California, where he is director of the Jane Goodall Research Center. He is also the author of Moral Origins, the Evolution of Virtue, Altruism and Shame. Well, there's no shame in being a human animal.
2: Well, speak for yourself. I I sometimes feel a lot of shame about being human, but then again, I can't imagine myself as being anything else. But in any case, we now have a better idea of what we can learn from the animals. You know, tricks for self-protection, for curing diseases, theirs and ours, uh, which may be one and the same, and the ways that we Homo sapiens, the animal, differ from other species.
3: Well, I think this farm is, is closing up for the day, so we should make our way out of here. Thanks to our production staff who always have great instincts, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and
2: Jay Weiler. Also support from Rena Sholsky, david and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and a big thanks also to our listeners.
3: Also a big thanks to Deer Hollow Farm in Mountain View, California. Your ears have been attuned to animal instinct, and you can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. While you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well. You could crow about us if you want.
2: or or, or just make some ba sounds. But if you're a listener and you prefer over-the-air radio because you're an animal and you look funny wearing earbuds, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program.
4: Tech moves fast.